be in Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 through 23 today. This is right after Daniel and his friends have uh, been informed that all the wise men of Babylon will be killed if they're not able to tell King Nebuchadnezzar the contents and the meaning of his dream. And so Daniel and his friends turn to God in prayer. And Daniel gets the answer from God in a dream of his own. And so Daniel responds to this Blessing from God, this wonderful revelation from God with this prayer. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Have any of you read uh, the Leo Tolstoy novel, Anna Karenina? I see a few nods of recognition. I've read it twice. Um, it's a long novel. I'm not saying that to brag. Uh, but I read it the first time. I thought, oh, this is the best novel in existence. And then a few years later, I thought, it's the best novel in existence. How could I only read it once? And so I read it again, and I thought, this is the best 200-page novel in existence, embedded in a very boring 700-page criticism of 19th century Russian political and cultural reform. Uh, And I see by your grins that some of you know what I'm talking about. Um, But the thing is, those 700 pages of criticism are crucial to the story, to the journey of one main character, Constantine Levin. He's an aristocrat. He embraces a country lifestyle. But he's on this constant search for wisdom and meaning in life. And so as he bounces back and forth between the country and the city, he seeks happiness in laboring alongside the workers in his fields. He tries to find peace by reconciling himself to a man who tries to put the moves on his wife. He remodels his house. He considers whether and how he should be involved in this brand new local regional council. He watches in amazement as his wife takes care of his brother who's dying of tuberculosis. But he never finds what he's looking for. Not in these things. And so through this journey, Levin goes back and forth between all kinds of ideas. He jumps in feet first to all kinds of wisdom, philosophy, and lifestyles. And he discovers that they don't live up to what he was hoping to find in them. And as and he recoils from them just before he's then on to the next thing. 
Or he was a man who was looking for the right way, the satisfying way, the good way to live in a world that was changing all around him. And I see in the church and in the world around us that we're looking for the same things. For the world is changing just as it always has. The post-World War II political order is starting, it appears, to erode in the Western world. and We don't know exactly what's going to replace it. Rising global temperatures are going to force changes in population distribution and economic production, but exactly what that means, we don't know. Opinions differ on exactly what will happen to humanity itself as machine learning makes computers ever more capable. Will there even be anything for us left to do? And so what are we to do when all this change is going on around us? Well, Daniel was a man who faced tremendous change in his own lifetime. Do you remember at the end of chapter 1 that he is the most trusted wise man to stand before the king? But now here we are halfway through chapter 2. And his head is next on the chopping block. How's that for change? So when Daniel and his friends seek mercy in verse 18 from the God of heaven, his concern is personal. You can forget the fate of Israel or the Babylonian Empire, for he, his own life is at stake. Change and the risk that it entails come for every one of us at some point or another. As the world changes around us, I've noticed a renewed interest in a certain type of public intellectual. There are people who promise to every listener, every reader, every YouTube subscriber, a good life, provided that you live according to some particular form of virtue. Yeah, I say virtue. Not everything that's out there is pure, is, is oriented entirely toward the pursuit of pleasure. And so people like Cal Newport, Jordan Peterson... Marie Kondo, Sam Harris, and a host of others are finding an eager audience for this idea. If you live a productive, fruitful life, you'll be richly rewarded for it. But for all the virtues of their teaching, really the best you can say about it is that it's good advice. And in many cases, it's good advice mixed with bad But none of it has the power to keep its promises. Like all good advice, one day it will fail you or you will fail it. So how do you live in a world that's changing all around you? Daniel knew a world that was changing all around him. And he didn't turn to any worldly source of wisdom or power to preserve himself. He knew that he had nowhere to turn but God himself. And God delivered. God showed Daniel what the king dreamed. And Daniel responds with worship. 
he responds with this prayer of praise, recognizing God alone as the one who has wisdom and might. So Daniel shows us the only place to turn to face the world and everything it throws at you. You turn to God. Because He alone has all might and all wisdom. And He gives these gifts for the benefit of His people. And so let's turn first to God's might. For it says here in verse 21, God changes times and seasons He removes kings, and he sets up kings. God directs all history to serve his purposes. It's easy to look at the world and see and and forget that God is the one in charge of it. You know, kings and other political leaders aren't normally known that they, for saying that they owe their authority to God. They ascribe victory in battle to superior strategic acumen or better military technology. Many kings have claimed to be a god or a descendant of the gods. In the Western world, elected leaders ascribe their victories to, uh, to their charisma, to the will of the people. And so when we see the leaders of the world, we see their position in terms of election results or being born to royalty or any other kind of natural explanation for their position of power. And so it's easy to look at these political leaders and conclude that God may reign in heaven, but human leaders reign on earth. But the biblical picture is different. And in the book of Daniel, this is why we have these great... uh, heavenly visions placed side by side with the very everyday, extraordinary, yes, but everyday earthly experiences of Daniel and his friends. Because the visions of the cosmos and the earthly lived experiences both find their source in God himself. Now, it seems likely to me that Daniel's praise for God's might is itself prompted by what he saw in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And we're going to discuss the dream in more detail next time, but for now, let's just say that Daniel saw that God himself controls the destiny of kings and kingdoms. He saw that God causes kingdoms to rise and to fall. And he saw that God will establish for himself a kingdom that will only rise and never fall. This is exactly what God has done in history. As Jesus said at the beginning of his ministry, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. For God established his kingdom by his might in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
And Jesus rose from the dead and He lives even now in the throne room of heaven. And so too His kingdom endures now and it will endure forever. But Daniel doesn't just stop at ascribing might to God because he's seen what God does on the stage of history. It says in verse 23 that Daniel says, you have given me wisdom and might. Well, Daniel, your head's on the chopping block. That's an audacious claim. But remember, back in chapter 1, we get an important lens for understanding this book of Daniel. For we read that Daniel outlives four kings and the Babylonian Empire. Now, at this point in the span of Daniel's life, Daniel doesn't know for sure how long he'll last. But we, the readers, know. Daniel's longevity is placed near the beginning of the book so that we can use it to interpret the rest of Daniel's story. And so when Daniel says that God has given him might, we know that it's true. We know that Daniel knew truly. He didn't know exactly what it would look like, but he knew that it was true. And at this moment, we know that Daniel knows that God's might will overrule the impulses of King Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel does know that he will continue to live and serve. And so God's might isn't only working on the cosmic, time-spanning, history-wide scale. For don't you think that if God can direct the rise and fall of nations for his own purposes, he can do the same thing for the other parts of your life. For if you trust in Christ, God has made you a citizen of his eternal kingdom. And you will live and endure forever. He's able to direct everything in your life for your blessing because he has a good purpose for you. Every pain, every sorrow, every tear you shed, none of it is wasted by God. Think back on your life. How many times has God begun a good turn in your life with suffering? And even if your suffering has not led to an improvement in your circumstances, have you noticed how God never fails to grow you through suffering? For God makes us like Christ in suffering. Because Jesus suffered. And as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, we inherit all that Christ has to offer provided that we suffer with Him 
in order that we may be glorified with him. For God is mighty, and he's able to thwart the enemy's evil intentions for you and turn them for your benefit. And so God is putting his might to work not only to bring the Babylonian Empire to heal, but also for Daniel's benefit to save his life and to glorify his own great name. But on top of that, God also provides wisdom. And here, Daniel teaches us to look to God's wisdom in two forms. First, understanding to do what's godly. And second, wisdom in the form of God's revelation to his people. And so, in verse 21, Daniel says that God gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. For true wisdom is is know-how to obey God. The book of Ecclesiastes asks what it means to live the good life and ends with the conclusion, fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. Proverbs, as many of you will know, introduces the theme, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's the lens for understanding the individual sayings within the Proverbs. They're real-world applications of the theme of obedience to God. But Daniel says something interesting here. He gives wisdom to the wise. He gives knowledge to those who have understanding. That sounds like circular reasoning to me. How about to you? It's a chicken and egg problem. Proverbs also says the same thing. It says near the beginning, let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. So it takes wisdom to learn wisdom. It takes wisdom to apply wisdom. But if we consider this according to the biblical understanding of wisdom, it takes faithfulness to God to learn to be more faithful to God. So, a devotion to faithfulness, God will bless by further increasing your devotion to faithfulness. And as you obey, God will make use of that faithful obedience on your part to continue to teach you to obey. Although you'll probably also find, if you're anything like me, you also learn to recognize more and more where you fall short. But this wisdom is what gave Daniel the savvy to obey God in difficult situations. It's so interesting to me that in chapter 1, Daniel declines to participate in court life. And in chapter 2, Daniel chooses to participate in court life. God gave Daniel the wisdom to recognize the danger of partaking of the king's food in chapter 1 and gave him the wisdom 
when the steward asked, when the steward refused Daniel's request for vegetables, or when the, excuse me, when the chief refused Daniel's request for vegetables, God gave Daniel the wisdom to just ask the steward instead. And yet here in chapter 2, Daniel sees something different. And I think the difference is that Daniel heard that the king had a dream. And Daniel knows that God, from time to time, speaks in dreams. And so Daniel had the wisdom in this case to recognize God's handiwork and to respond appropriately by seeking God in prayer and worship. So there are only so many hard and fast rules in life. The greatest commandment is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is, love your neighbor as yourself. But there's no step-by-step instructions for how to obey these great commandments in absolutely every situation. It's not like obedience is the same thing as building a model ship. Or if you're like me and you do some home maintenance, I love it, I just type in, um, how do you install a ceiling fan? And I get an Instructables.com article on how to do it. I'm not sure that I could imagine typing into Google, how do I obey God when? I'm not sure that Instructables covers that. So how can we find the wisdom we need? I can only think off the top of my head of just asking God. Ask God to give it. God gave great wisdom to Solomon when he asked for it. And James teaches us, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. So if you desire to seek wisdom, the only thing I can think of is to ask God in prayer to give you that wisdom. But there is a second form of wisdom. It's God's revelation to his people. See, when Daniel heard that the king needed to know his dream, Daniel didn't put the same kind of wisdom to work. Daniel didn't put that savoir faire to work. He didn't uh, put on a deerstalker cap and get a magnifying glass and go searching like a detective for the dream and its meaning. He didn't put any cunning plan into place. He sought the meaning of the king's dream from God. He asked God to reveal it to him. And so we see here in verse 22 that God is a God who reveals what is hidden. 
God is the light of wisdom itself. And it's true, God doesn't reveal everything. Moses says in Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever so that you may do all the words of this law. And for us today, we're speaking of God's revelation through his prophets and apostles recorded in Scripture for us. This is God's revelation to you. And so all that God requires of you to believe in him, to obey him, are written for you in the Bible. And so sometimes I, we want to hear something from God beyond what he's written from in Scripture. When we face a tough decision, we want to hear his word directly from his mouth. What college should I go to? Should I take this job or that job? Should I marry this person or not? We want certainty. And I'm not telling you that God doesn't give guidance. And it's within his power to give more or less direct guidance as he wills. But the main way God speaks to us is through his word. And it's the only place that he promises every time you will find his word when you seek it there. You might not find a direct answer to your question. The Bible is not a magic eight ball. But you will find what you need to obey him. And this revelation, it culminates in Christ. <coughs> in Jesus, these twin themes of God's wisdom and might reach their zenith. For it's as we said in the Scripture reading earlier from 1 Corinthians 1, Jesus was a stumbling block to Jews, not powerful, and folly to Gentiles, not wise. But to those who are being saved, Christ is the wisdom of God and the power of God. This isn't a wisdom or a power that you find in this world. It's a better wisdom. It's a better power. It's true wisdom and power. Words fail me to think of how I can describe this or illustrate it for you. Except that we see it in the cross. For if wisdom is knowing how to obey God, Jesus did it perfectly. He never put a foot wrong in his whole life. He walked the way that God wants us all to walk. He himself, he was wise enough to teach us as a wise teacher. Think about his teaching on discipleship in the Sermon on the Mount. Think about the sublime perfection of his, of his parables teaching us about the kingdom of God. But this wisdom, this know-how of obedience to God led him to obey God by going to the cross. And so he suffered a criminal's death so that your sins can be forgiven you. All you need is to rely on him in faith. You rely on him to be your wisdom. As it says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, because of him you are in Christ Jesus, 
who has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And when you rely on Him, all His righteousness, all of His wisdom to walk in God's ways is credited to you. And His Holy Spirit guides you to walk better and better, more and more faithfully through your life. But God's wisdom is not all that's on display in Jesus' atoning work. For that very cross that forebodes a shameful death was subverted by God to become the source of life. For God has the power to redeem through death. And when Jesus rose again from the dead, this was God's ultimate power move. For he dealt the decisive blow to death. And at Jesus' return, he will destroy death as the final enemy. Even now, Jesus is exalted at the right hand of the Father. He died, and yet he is in the heavenly throne room of heaven. And he sits down on his Father's throne because he conquered. And so you can forget kings and kingdoms. Our Lord has defeated death itself. And so wisdom and might are united in the cross of Jesus Christ. And that makes him different from the idols and false gods, for he has true wisdom and power. The wise men of Babylon couldn't find the king's dream, but the true God could. Now these days, we may not bow down to statues or offer sacrifices the way they did, but look at your own life. Where do you turn for guidance? Where do you turn to keep you safe? Self-help gurus? Your favorite political commentator? Your job? Family? These may all be good in their proper place. But if there's any wisdom or power in any of them, It's only because they have it from God. And if you don't turn to God for the wisdom and strength that you need, all these things will fail you. But Jesus never will. For He is wisdom and might itself. And He will put His wisdom and might to work for you. He's already done it in the cross. And He'll continue to do it for you. And he will be there for you, no matter what the world throws at you.